Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Well, now I know I can go through this stuff a lot more slowly. <laughs> um, but if there's still time at the end, we can have <clears throat> question and answer again. And this is session number two on Augustine's conversion. And there are quotes that you should have in front of you, beginning with number four and then going on the back side of the sheet up through number eight. <clears throat> we'll, I'll reference those quotes as we go along. If I were to ask you what the most famous conversion story is after Paul's conversion in Acts 9, what would be at the top of your list? Well, if you put at the top of your list the agony under the fig tree in Milan in August of 386, as recorded in Book 8 of the Confessions, that would be a good choice. What Augustine gave us for the first time was a detailed account of the intense inner struggle of a convert. Nobody before him had described conversion with such psychological depth. When C.S. Lewis does this, at the end of Surprised by Joy, he's following Augustine's model. The editors of the Norton Anthology of Western Literature, which is the book that I'm teaching to David back there, go even further than this. They mark Augustine's conversion as one of the turning points in Western history. And this is a quote from the Norton Anthology. They're not, not friendly to Christians, um, but they write this. His account of his conversion in the Garden of Milan records the true moment of transition from the ancient to the medieval world. Here is the point of change itself. So according to the editors of this anthology, that August day of 386 was the moment that the Roman world ended, the classical world ended, and the medieval world began. Uh, that's pretty astonishing. In other words, Augustine's conversion story has no parallel in literature. Uh, what would we, it's an interesting question, what, what would you list to round out the top five if Augustine's conversion may be the most famous conversion story after the New Testament canon. What do you think would be number two? Anybody? Yeah. Martin Luther. Martin Luther. I'd go with Martin Luther's number two. Number three? Huh? Oh, Spurgeon, when he walks into that little chapel and hears that guy who's filling in in the pulpit. That's a pretty cool one. Maybe Spurgeon. Edwards. Someone say Edwards? All right. Edwards, perhaps. John Wesley, when he felt his heart strangely warmed, uh, could be up there. Maybe Bunyan in um, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Um, huh? C.S. Lewis. Yeah, C.S. Lewis would be up there, too, in the last century as well. But Augustine's is towering really above those other men. Not, not that anything strange happened in his conversion, but even when, you know, Paul is thrown off the horse on the road to Damascus 
and there's that bright light, and Jesus says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. We don't really have any record there of what's going on in Paul's head, right? Do we? Um, And Augustine is the first guy in all of history to work out over a long um, period of uh, several books of the Confessions, his the agony of his soul, what's going on before the conversion, how he has intellectual problems, theological problems, spiritual problems, sensual problems, and they all come to a head underneath the fig tree. And nobody had ever done that. This might be the birth of modern psychology, actually, right here. Um, the conversion scene at the end of Book 8 is the climax of the 10 biographical books of the Confessions. Everything in books 1 to 8 lead up to it, and books 9 and 10 show how it works out. What Augustine sets down in, this, in his book is the steady pursuit the Victorian poet Francis Thompson describes so beautifully in his poem, The Hound of Heaven, and that's um, quotation number four on your sheet. It's a long poem. I'm just giving you the opening lines. Maybe you're familiar with this. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee. Who betrayest me? And now from the end of the poem, just these three lines. And this is Jesus talking to Francis Thompson. All which I took from thee I did but take, not for thy harms, but just that thou might seek it in my arms. Which kind of sounds like that famous quote in the first paragraph, right? You made us for yourself and our hearts find no rest until they rest in you. Even this poem by Francis Thompson is clearly Augustinian. And it's Augustinian, why? Because the hound of heaven is at Augustine's heels all the way through the confessions. Jesus Christ, the hound of heaven, is at his heels all over the ancient world. And he finally closes with his quarry in the garden in Milan. Augustine, through every book, leaves hints that his story parallels that of the prodigal son in Luke 15. In his story, he sees the loving pursuit of the father to find the lost boy. This book, The Confessions, is not about how Augustine sought God, but it's about how God sought Augustine. The Confessions records the geographical, intellectual, and spiritual journey of a sinner out of darkness into light, from the ancient sinful city of man to the eternal city of God. It shows the restless heart flitting from one thing to another all over the Roman world until at last it comes to rest in the God who made that heart for himself. The outline is right there in the first paragraph, right? You made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. All the events in Augustine's conversion story in books 1 to 8 illustrate the truth of that statement. That's why that's sort of the thesis for the book. One of the important ingredients of Augustine's conversion is the faithful intercessory prayers of his mother, Monica. Now, there's going to be a breakout session tomorrow where the women and the men are going to be separate. And um, 
the women are really going to look at Monica's prayers for her son and the theme of Monica in the book. I don't want to steal too much thunder from that, but since the men won't hear much about Monica, I do want to say a few things about her. She gives us one of the greatest examples of godly parents' persistent prayers for their children's salvation. She prayed for three decades before God brought her son to stand beside her on the rule of faith. Early in the Confessions, Augustine remembers that Monica seasoned him from birth with God's salt. That's what he says. She said prayers over him and spoke the name of God as she nursed him. That's a really interesting thing for him to to say. The result of this early introduction to God's name was that, and this is a quote, Deep inside my heart, his name remained, and nothing could entirely captivate me, however learned, however neatly expressed, however true it might be, unless his name were in it. That's from book three. In other words, Augustine knows, looking back, that he was a marked man. The effectual call of Christ rang in his ears from infancy. But though the name of Jesus was so deeply lodged in him from his earliest years, thanks to his godly mother, he worked hard to mute Jesus' voice. He would go away to cities and even far countries and dirty himself in pigsties before bowing the knee to King Jesus. Early on in the Confessions in Book 2, Augustine meditates on the nature of sin when he remembers stealing pears from an orchard with a group of friends. He comes to the conclusion that he had no good motive for doing this other than the desire to do wrong. <clears throat> this leads him to think <clears throat> this leads him to think that sin is our perverse attempt to be God. And this is a quote from book two. All who desert you and set themselves up against you merely copy you in a perverse way. So for over 30 years of his life, Augustine was trying to be the god of his world. But he was dead in his sins and transgressions. In Book 10, Augustine breaks down his besetting sins into the three categories of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Uh, those three uh, from the verse in 1 John 2. He's talking about the things that he still struggles with, but they're a helpful guide to the disordered loves that drove him before his conversion. Augustine is famous for his frank description of his struggle with the lust of the flesh. No one before him had described the struggles of puberty with such immediacy and anguish. Take this passage from the beginning of book two, and this is quote number five. Notice the figures of speech. Bodily desire like a morass and adolescent sex welling up within me exuded mists which clouded over and obscured my heart so that I could not distinguish the clear light of true love from the murk of lust. Love and lust together seethed within me. In my tender youth, they swept me away over the precipice of my body's appetites and plunged me in the whirlpool of sin. I was tossed and spilled, floundering in the broiling sea, of my fornication. That's from the beginning of book two. And you can see that all of the metaphors that he uses, the figures of speech, are showing that what lust did was cloud his vision. 
And lust was like a storm. Um, It was like a shipwreck. Um, And he was lost at sea. Uh, Nobody had ever described um, puberty in that way before. And that is the lust of the flesh. These habits of scratching the itching sore of lust will form the chain that enslaves his will. So that even right before his conversion, he will pray to God, give me chastity. But not yet. God, give me chastity, he prays in book eight. But not yet. By the lust of the eyes, Augustine means the curiosity for idle distractions that do not lead to the love of God. For nine years, Augustine was trapped in the lore of Manichaean dualism, which was kind of like Freemasonry mixed with Scientology with a heavy dose of the light and dark side of the force. And that's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) Please don't ask me questions about the Manichaeans. I have no idea what they really believed. It's weird. He was in bondage to this science fiction soap opera for some of the best years of his youth. Professing to be wise, he fell for the most ridiculous superstition. Augustine gave himself to intellectual pride, and as Paul said in Romans 1, God gave him over to a depraved mind. Pride is really the sin that encompasses all of Augustine's rebellion against God. And under the pride of life, Augustine shows that from his earliest days as a student, he was driven by ambition. His family wanted him to succeed at school and in his career, and he was an eager and brilliant student. Over time, he became addicted to vainglory, the desire for worldly glory. He wanted to climb the ladder all the way to the top, and he got there. When he went to Milan, where the Roman emperor had his court, it was for a plum job. He was the most accomplished young professor of rhetoric in the Roman world, but he was miserable. In book six, he talks about passing a beggar on the street and thinking that the beggar, who had none of his learning but also none of his worries, must be happier than he was. So these were Augustine's three besetting sins, lust, vain curiosity, and ambition. And they blinded him to God's provision of salvation, which can only be received in the gratitude of humility. He says in book three that when he first read the Bible, he scorned it because he was too conceited to accept its simplicity. As Augustine looks back on it, he sees how the providence of God led him by mysterious and wonderful ways toward Christ. Part of this was how God mixed into his cup of pleasure much bitterness. Augustine would scratch the itching sore of lust, and all the scratching just kept his wound open and pussing. Sorry to be that graphic. That's him. That's what he says. The deeper he explored the Manichaean heresy, the more... He got confused. Every promotion in his career would have disappointment attached to it. He would long to teach in Rome, and then the Roman students were such rascals that he had to move on to Milan. Like Mick Jagger. You ready? (laughs) Come on. Can't get no. 
We can hear Augustine sing. (laughs) I won't sing it. (laughs) I can't get no satisfaction, but I try, and I try, and I try. And I think Mick Jagger's still singing that. There was no joy in his life without Christ. All the pleasures seemed to fester into deeper pain. So Augustine, looking back, marvels marvels at what God did. He now sees that God moved him from Carthage to Rome and from Rome to Milan so he could come under the spiritual influence of his father in the faith, Ambrose. This was the geographical journey aspect of his conversion. Interwoven with that physical, external movement is the internal journey of Augustine's mind and heart, the intellectual and spiritual journey, which are presented in books 7 and 8. Book 7 is one of the most interesting parts of the Confessions because it's the only book in which nothing really happens outwardly in his life. He's settled in Milan, he's around 30 years old, and he's got a good job. He seems set up in his career. But the drama of that book is the inner turmoil in Augustine's mind. He's stewing over some big philosophical problems. He's emotionally wound up over them. Back when he was 19 in book three, he had read a book by Cicero that had changed his life. It woke him up to the pursuit of wisdom. Then for most of the next decade, he got wrapped up with the Manichees. Now he knows the Manichees are wrong, but he's still stuck on the problem of evil and the form of God. In book seven, we see how God helps him to overcome these obstacles. Augustine comes to see that evil is not a created thing, but a lack of good. It results when any creature turns away from God. Then he reads the Platonists who show him that God is a spirit who does not have a body like man. The Platonists are really helpful to Augustine, but by now he's growing in discernment and he perceives that the Platonist thinkers are proud when they talk about the ascent of the soul to God. They deny the incarnation and the crucifixion of Christ. And there's no hint of grace or love in their philosophy. So from the Platonists, he goes on to Paul. And in Paul's letters, he finds that all of his intellectual and theological hang-ups are wonderfully resolved. He assents to the truth of Christianity in his mind, and that's how Book 7 ends. He's there, right? His mind has no more objections, so why doesn't he just decide to follow Jesus right then and there? The problem is, his will is bound. He loves sin too much to let it go. Book 8 starts out with a series of conversion stories or Christian testimonies that fire him up. He says, I began to glow with fervor to imitate him of the story of Victor Rhinus' conversion. But he's a man in chains, and here's how he describes the links of that chain of sin. This is a wonderful, wonderful passage here in Book 8. I mean, it wasn't wonderful for him, but the way he describes it is so important to see. This is quote number 6, if you look at your page. I was held fast, not in fetters clamped upon me by another, but by my own will, which had the strength of iron chains. The enemy held my will in his power, and from it he had made a chain that shackled me. For my will was perverse, and lust had grown from it, 
And when I gave in to lust, habit was born. And when I did not resist the habit, it became a necessity. These were the links that together formed what I've called my chain, and it held me fast in the duress of servitude. We can see the main argument he will develop against Pelagian moralism here. His perverse will produced lust. Do you see it? Lust produced a habit, and habit produced necessity. These were the links of the chain that bound his will and made him helpless to change himself. He's the wretched man that Paul describes in Romans 7, who has to be freed by sovereign work of God's grace. Romans 7 is exactly what Augustine quotes here, along with Galatians 5.17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So now we come to the conversion scene, the climax of the confessions. In frantic torment, this man throws himself under a fig tree in a garden. He tears his hair and hammers his forehead with his fists. He locks his fingers and hugs his knees. And those are his words. A great storm breaks in him, bringing with it a great deluge of tears. Suddenly he hears the voice of a child saying, Take it and read. Take it and read. He picks up the book of Paul's epistles that lies next to him, opens the book at random, and reads Romans 13, 13 to 14, which says, Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And God works in power through his word to break that chain of lust and to give him a new heart with new desires. Augustine is like a newborn baby. This is what he writes. As I came to the end of that sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and the darkness of doubt was dispelled. We might think of Charles Wesley's hymn here, My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be, right? You converted me to yourself, is Augustine's simple comment on what happened. He can't take the least bit of credit for it. It was a sovereign work of God's grace. This leads to what may be the most important paragraph in the book at the beginning of book nine, and this is quote number seven on your sheet. But during all those years, where was my free will? How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had feared to lose and was now glad to reject. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me. And took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood, you who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts, you who surpass all honor 
At last, my mind was freed from the gnawing anxieties of ambition and gain, from wallowing in filth and scratching the itching sore of lust. The gnawing anxieties of ambition and gain, the wallowing in filth and scratching the itching sore of lust. These were all driven out of his heart's affections by the huge sovereign joy of God. It was not just that these dark demons departed from him. It was that the love of God was shed abroad in his heart and that he now had new desires in place of the old ones. What seized him under that fig tree was the power of a great new affection. John Piper summarizes the passage like this. Grace is God's giving a sovereign joy in God that triumphs over joy in sin. That's how the central plot unfolds. But there are two important things to mention in the epilogue to this. The first is that he still remembers at a distance of 10 years what the months as a new believer were like. The emotions he expresses here are beautiful. You had pierced our hearts with the arrows of your love, and we carried your words with us as though they were staked to our living bodies, he writes. He says of his teenage son, Adiodatus, who became a Christian at the same time, that in grace they were the same age. Look at quote number eight. This is a really beautiful quote. We made him our companion, his son, right? His teenage son. In grace, no younger than ourselves. Together, we were ready to begin our schooling in your ways. We were baptized, and all anxiety over the past melted away from us. The days were all too short, for I was lost in wonder and joy, meditating upon your far-reaching providence for the salvation of the human race. The tears flowed from me when I heard your hymns and canticles, for the sweet singing of your church moved me deeply. The music surged in my ears. Truth seeped into my heart, and my feelings of devotion overflowed so that the tears streamed down, but they were tears of gladness. Augustine was a grown man of 32, but the Lord had humbled him to become a child again. And it's just beautiful. The second thing to point out is that Augustine doesn't make his conversion out to be a miracle cure for all his ailments. The last chapters of Book 10 are so important because there he presents himself as a convalescent who daily needs fresh forgiveness. He would still say, command what you wish and give me the grace to do what you command, which was the line that Pelagius hated so much. He would say that after his conversion, not before. He felt as dependent on God's grace ten years later as he had felt that day in the garden. He's not done confessing sin, and he will not be done until he has been set free from this body of death. But now the struggle is different. The reigning power of sin has been broken in his life. 
and the mediator who applies the medicine, Jesus Christ, has come to live in his heart. So now he struggles not as a prisoner in chains, but as a pilgrim and a freeborn citizen of the city of God. He is no longer the prodigal son. He is a beloved son of the Father. He can fight his sin now from a position of victory. And that's the story of his conversion. And that's the main burden of the book. And it's awesome. And there's nothing like it in the whole of Christian literature. And I really recommend that if you haven't read it yet, that you go and do it. Because it's really inspiring.